0: Father God, we thank you for this afternoon that we can gather together with the church family to hear from you in your word. Would you bless this time? Would you give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, Lord, and and give us the proper vision of Christ that we need as his body to follow him, our great head and Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, turn you with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Samuel. We're going to be going through the book of Second Samuel. We've been going through this book uh, for a while. We went through First Samuel first, and we've been studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the scriptures, uh, looking at what the Lord has for us to understand in his perfect word. And we've learned all about this king that God prepared to establish over his people Israel and how King David points us forward to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And so today, in chapter 8, we're going to continue hearing and hopefully heeding these lessons as we look at the kingdom that God established under David. Second Samuel, chapter 8, we're going to be in the whole chapter. You can read along with me. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag out of the hand of the Philistines, And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betha and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When King Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, King of Zobah. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants of David. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Zeruiah was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Karathites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. Newer isn't always better. I don't know if you would agree with that statement, but it definitely has been true in my life. Back in 2015, I purchased my first ever MacBook, and so I had been... Uh, a, anti-Apple guy for all my life. And finally, I decided I'm just going to bite the bullet and pay this premium and buy a MacBook. And it was because my employer was paying for it. Um, so I bought the MacBook, and it was a special MacBook. It was the smallest and lightest laptop that Apple had ever made at that time. Uh, and it worked for my needs. As a pastor of a coming church plant, I was able to use it and, and write sermons because really all I do is type. And I figured I would use this laptop for 10 years to come. Well, one day, a few years into my experiment, uh, my laptop stopped working. And particular, it wouldn't update anymore. And it turns out they used a special processor because it was such a small computer that this processor wasn't the normal processor and then you couldn't receive updates after a certain point. Now, I remember at that point, I was really annoyed that I had spent all this money on this nice new Apple computer and only about three or four years in, it had stopped receiving updates. Fast forward a year or so later, One day, I'm using my computer, and and a little pop-up appears, and the newest version of the operating system, the the more advanced one, was compatible, again, with my old laptop. And I was excited. I was like, this is awesome. I I immediately downloaded it. I I did all the troubleshooting I needed to do. I put it on there. I booted up my not-that-old computer and found out that with this new operating system, it was the laggiest thing in the world. It, It was terrible. I couldn't even like open up browsers. I could barely type... I could barely do anything with it. I just wanted my old computer back. Newer isn't always better. And yet at the same time, I think in our society, in our culture, oftentimes this is how we act. Right? The best thing that I can have is the newest phone or car or church or spouse. But of course, it's a fallacy. There's even a name for it in the world of psychology, the appeal to novelty fallacy that that just because something is more modern doesn't mean it's better or right. The novelist Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park, he's not like a theologist or anything like that, he said, the belief that our species always moves forward to ever better and more enlightened ways of life is utter fantasy. What's new is not always better, and sometimes what was in the past was actually pretty good. I think as you're going through the scriptures and you're reading a lot of times the Old Testament, it can be hard to have the right perspective. And I'm so grateful that at this church, there's a lot of people here who you're actually reading along with us. And then you tell me that when we're going through the books of First and Second Samuel, you're reading along, you're trying to understand these passages. And sometimes you get to a passage and you read something that's just history and you wonder, what am I supposed to learn from that, right? What am I supposed to do with all the blank ites and all the names that I don't understand? And, and they're just doing these things that have no effect on my life today. Well, this passage of Scripture that we just read together is a passage about a kingdom that existed 3,000 years ago. It was relatively small, relatively unimportant on the world stage, right? It's not like there was this huge empire of Israel. The people lived in a time that was utterly unlike what we live in today. They had no air conditioning at all. They lived in a place that was uncomfortable, unnatural, strange culturally. Their lives did not look like the lives that we want for ourselves. And yet in these verses, what we see is a challenge that if we look back carefully enough, if we look at what the scripture is telling us, this small kingdom in the Middle East 3,000 years ago was actually good. But there was something about this kingdom that was not just good, it was really great. That what God brought about in David's kingdom was something that we should desire ourselves. And so that's what we need to see today. What, what do we see about this kingdom as we look back? What do we see that is good about it? How do we desire some of the same things even today? We're going to see in this passage that we'll understand that when we see that it was a victorious kingdom, a consecrated kingdom, and finally a righteous kingdom when David ruled over all Israel. So we're looking at the passage together. The first point is that David's rule was a victorious kingdom, a victorious kingdom. If you're reading this chapter for the first time, what should strike you, as it strikes anyone who reads it, is that this chapter is a lot about war. Okay, there's a whole lot of warring going on. And this is probably not the most comfortable thing for us to read about in the Bible. For whatever reason, in our day and age, right, people love to watch TV shows where there's all this killing going on, but they go to the Bible and they're like, oh, there's too much killing in the Bible. The Bible has a lot of killing. We have to deal with this right off the bat. Why the emphasis on war? Well, the answer is in the chapter. If you read it carefully, you will see that there is a statement that's repeated twice in verse 6 and 14. You can look at it with me. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So there is a lot of war in this passage, but it's not about war. This passage is about the fact that God had a victory through David in this time and this place. And there's a difference, right, between just kind of an ongoing war and a victory. On July 4th, we don't celebrate the fact that we were in war with Britain for 300 years and we're still at it today. No, we celebrate the fact that we won. It's over. There was victory that happened. And so what the author is telling us is not that David fought battles his whole reign. No, he was involved in these wars, but God gave him victory. God gave him victory so let's look at these victories one at a time because the ones that are highlighted in this chapter, they form an important picture for us. First, if you're looking at verse 1, it starts off with victory over the Philistines. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. So who were the Philistines? You guys may know if you've been with us for a while, the Philistines were the arch enemies of Israel. They lived to the west. They were on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and they were the ones who oppressed Israel for centuries. Through the times of the judges, Up until the reign of of Saul, into the time of David, these were the arch enemies. They were the ones they were doing battle with the most. And David, as we read in previous chapters, in his reign, he conquered them. He defeated them. They no longer were the threat they once were. And this word methegama, which is just transliterated into English, it's a word that we're not sure exactly what it means, but it has to do with a bridle for horse. Uh, Kenny talked about that last week. And, and a cubit or a forearm. So honestly, no one knows exactly what it means. That's why it's translated just methegama, but it has to do with their power. He took power away from these enemies. He took the reign, so to speak, from the Philistines. He took victory over these enemies of oppression and violence and fear in Israel. The Lord gave to David victory. And then in verse 2, we see not just victory over the Philistines in the West, but over the Moabites. And the Moabites, if you don't know the geography, the Moabites were to the east of Israel. So we looked at the west side, the le- if you're bad with maps, the left side, and then the Moabites on the right side of Israel. On the right-hand side, the Moabites were an important nation for a few reasons. One is that they were the nation that David's great-grandmother came from. You guys remember the book of Ruth? She was a Moabitess. She came from the nation of Moab. And so in this story, what actually happens earlier, not in this chapter, is that David at some point when he's running away from Saul, he sends his dad's family over to Moab to kind of keep them safe, to put him into hiding so that Saul can't find them and presumably kill them. And so the Moabites haven't really been the bad guys in Samuel, but here we see that God gives victory over the Moabites as well. He defeats them, and then it says that he judges them. Verse 2, he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. It seems kind of brutal. Right? He kills two-thirds of the defeated soldiers. Two-thirds of the prisoners of war, so to speak. This is the nation that was in some ways allied with him in the past. And commentators like to come up with reasons about why he, he did this. Was there some revenge? Did they kill his family that we don't know about, and he was kind of taking revenge on them? I don't know any of that, but but here's the important point. In all these wars, including the war against Moab, it wasn't David's war. It was the Lord's. The Lord gave him victory. The Lord used David to bring about his righteous judgment over the enemies of Israel. So in this defeat of Moab, including not just the defe- defeat, but the death, David brings about the judgment of God. We've looked at the left side, the right side, and now to the north. In verse 3, we see victory over the Syrians. text says that Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, was king over Zobah and a couple other cities, Betha and Barathai, according to verse 8. These were cities that were north of Israel. They were above Israel, part of the Syrian association of cities. Now, when David defeats Hadadezer, the other Syrians come to help because he has three cities, right? So he defeats one city. The other Syrians come. They want to help him out. But David defeats all of them as well. And we're told some details about this northern war. We're told how in the process of defeating the Syrians, David hamstrung all but 100 of the horses of Hadadezer's army, greatly reducing his military power. Well, why is this? Why does David do something like that? There's a law in Deuteronomy that kings were not supposed to acquire for themselves many horses. In the same law, it says you're not supposed to acquire for yourself many wives. And we know David failed in half the law, but at least he kept the part with the horses. So he doesn't build up a cavalry or a chariot army like Egypt. He hamstrings the horses so that they can't be used in a new army by Hadadezer even though they could still be useful for other tasks. So there's victory in the north. And now kind of jumping past a few of the details of that situation, we go down to verse 13, and we see the fourth and and final direction, okay? We already saw west, east, north. One last direction, of course, south. To the south of Israel were the Edomites. The Edomites were Israel's neighbors, and like the Moabites, they were kind of related to Israel. They were descended from Esau, if you remember that story from Genesis Verse 13 says that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The Edomites, along with all these other guys, become David's servants. They give tribute to him. Where was the Valley of Salt? It was in Israel in the south. And so either David was casting out Edomites who had occupied Israelite territory or he successfully beat back an invasion into their home. And so there's victory in this passage over the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. And this victory in all four corners of the nation, so to speak, characterized his rule. So the question is, what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to learn with all that, right? That's a whole lot of history, not a whole lot of preaching. There's a temptation when you come to a passage of Scripture that has details you don't quite get to try to—you're searching, or what is the meaning? You're going to put meaning into it to maybe look at the details and allegorize them, right? Like maybe the fact that there was, like, two lines of guys who died and one line of guys who lived means that um, only one-third of people in the history of the world will be saved, right? People have thought that in the past. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's what it's about. Sometimes people will look at the numbers. They'll be like, you know, like, the fact that David killed or hamstrung all these horses but only left 100— uh, it has to do with the size of a church, right? So when you get to 100 members, that's about as big as you can get before the church goes crazy and off the rails. Uh, who knows? We'll find out. Um, I don't think that's what it's about either. Instead, I think if you're looking for the meaning of this passage, it is simpler. You see, it's a clear picture that God paints through the history of what David does of a kingdom that experiences not just God's victory, but the peace that comes. From it. Right? They're victorious in all four corners of the nation. What's that to show us that when God has victory, his people experience peace? And yet notice that that peace comes through judgment. Right? These aren't just random wars. They're not just wars to, to take from other countries' plunder. The Bible tells us that all of these nations who God gave into the hand of Israel— From the time of Moses till the time of David, it was done so in judgment of their sins and rejection of the Lord. The things that they did that would defile even the land the Torah talks about. God was judging them for. In understanding this victorious kingdom, we can't miss the fact that what we are seeing is the judgment of God against the enemies of Israel and Yahweh himself for their rejection of his rule, for their idolatry, for their sin and their oppression, of his people. And so the lesson of this victorious kingdom is that they experience in the north, south, east, west peace. But that peace comes through judgment. See, it's not a G-rated thing. We don't have a G-rated God. C.S. Lewis said it well in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? That Aslan is not safe. He's not a tame lion. The word that's translated defeat in this passage over and over again, is an old-fashioned word in the King James, to smite. You guys know that word? To smite someone? To strike them down? That's the word that's translated defeat. It could literally mean kill. And one commentator says this about this passage. We have a tendency in the modern world to soften the blow. As if the God of the universe, the one who can destroy both body and soul, as Jesus himself said, is not a God that we should fear. The Bible tells us we ought to fear him. He is greatly to be feared and greatly to be praised. He's the commander of the armies of heaven. He's not a senile old grandpa who just winks at your transgressions. He's a holy God who judges individuals and nations. In his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Paul Copin writes, The never-angered person is morally deficient. The slow-to-anger person is a virtuous one. You guys understand what he's saying? See, God hates sin. And we go through life and, and we will all sin. We are all sinners. And we become comfortable with that idea, right? We become comfortable with the fact that, that we don't live according to his perfect standards, So much so that it doesn't even bother our conscience at times. That doesn't mean that it doesn't bother God. It doesn't mean that it's not real and serious to God. God is gracious. He is slow to anger. And yet there is a time when judgment comes. What began literally with the conquest of Jerusalem expands to the conquest of all the nations in the, in the area of Israel who have set themselves against the Lord. Now, um, I know this is going to be online, so I have some fears that's going to sound like I'm some sort of nut trying to incite you to violence. I'm not. There are not wars of human politics. These are the judgments of God through his chosen king at this time and place in, his, in Israel's history. David gets to do what we are not called to do because God proclaimed judgment on these nations for their sins and called David to be the instrument of that judgment. And what about for us today? The victorious kingdom reminds us of the fact that God will strike down, smite, utterly destroy every kingdom set against him. And That is bad news for sinners, but it's good news for the saved. The only way of peace which the Bible prescribes is the warning of judgment that is essential to the good news of the gospel. You know, I find that, like I mentioned before, in my own eyes, sometimes I have a tendency to let my view of God shrink, right? That that only the sins that I don't do really offend God. And the sins that I commit, they're not that important. They're not that big a deal. God doesn't care. I become more and more comfortable with sometimes being like the world watching things that glorify sin, listening to the infinite ways we justify selfishness or hatred or immorality or impatience and the like. And maybe I start to recoil at the thought of God's judgment. But we need to understand that there's no way to paradise. There's no way to heaven. There's no good news without the eradication of sin. You guys understand that? If sin were allowed into God's kingdom, well then it would just be this hell on earth all over again. God's judgment leads to a good kingdom, a victorious kingdom. And what else? Well, we find in verse 7 through 12 that the kingdom is not just victorious, but it is a consecrated kingdom as well. Look at verses 7 through 12. We skipped over them briefly, but these verses take a break out of the war account with Syria to show us another aspect of the kingdom of Israel under David, you can read it with me. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betha and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. And these also King David dedicated to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now again, this looks like just some historical record of success, a list of the wars, spoils, but it's more than that, of course. It's the Holy Spirit's word to us in Scripture. Not because of some hidden message, but because of what it shows us about the kind of kingdom that God brought about through David, his king. The text makes clear that the spoils of war were not brought back to Israel to fill up the treasury of David or to make even the people rich, but to bring glory to the Lord. How do we see that? Well, first we see it in verses 11 and 12 with the stuff. David got all of this stuff. And the word there that's translated, um, articles sometimes of silver and gold, it really is just a word for stuff. He got all this stuff. He dedicated them to the Lord, along with the rest of the stuff from the nations he subdued. And this is more than just the ones in this chapter. If you see the Ammonites, the Amalekites, they aren't in this passage. And so it's telling us that in David's kingdom, this was the rule. Whatever they acquired from other people, it wasn't for their own riches. It wasn't for their own sake. It wasn't for their own glory. It was dedicated to the Lord. The glory of Israel under David was to bring and consecrate to the Lord the best because they knew it was really meant for him. Right? For David, because the victories were from the Lord, the spoils went to the Lord as well. When I was in college, I uh, spent a night at one of my friend's houses. Now, he and I, we go way back. Okay, um, We were childhood best friends all the way till the time we went to college together. And growing up together, I would often spend time in his house with his family. And his mom was just like a second mother to me. She was wonderful. She, was, uh, she, she just loved to take care of us. And whenever we would have dinner, she would give me a double portion of the dinner. So if you guys remember Ruth, I showed how much she loved me. She'd give me extra food. She always wanted me to eat all the leftovers. Um, she helped me gain a lot of weight. Um, and, and it was just, it was great. Going to college, though, um, we were adults now. And we went back to my friend's parents' house. Now, they had bought a brand-new house after... We had all gone off to college. Um, and in this brand new house, they had a brand new kitchen. And in the brand new kitchen, there was a brand new stove with a griddle built into the stove. Now, we were staying over. I had so stayed over in his house, I don't know, hundreds of times before, but not in this house. And in this new house, we were staying over. And the next morning, we as, uh, I don't know, probably 18, 19-year-olds decided we're going to make breakfast in his mom's brand new kitchen. So we went and we bought some food and we took it there and we we cooked on the griddle. If you guys don't know about griddles and cooking, it went from a shiny new griddle to this brown, like, like burnt looking piece of metal in that one moment. And I'd never seen my friend's mom angry with me before, but I could tell she was holding, she was slow to anger, but it finally came out. And I remember also thinking in response, I was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, you know, this griddle is meant for cooking. This griddle is meant for making breakfast. All we did was make breakfast on the griddle. Like, why are you so angry about it? But looking back, I realize yeah, that griddle was for making breakfast. But it was for her to make breakfast. Not for me. See, what I didn't understand was that there are things that are for the Lord for other people, not for me. This is what Consecration is about. You'll read about it in Scripture. You read about dedicating things to the Lord. What does it mean? Right? Does it mean that you can never touch it? You can never? no. It's to be given to the uses of God, the purposes of God. Now we don't know exactly what all the spoils of war that David got were used for, but it seems that like they were actually used. A lot of them for the building of the temple under Solomon, his son. David's kingdom, they gave the spoils of their wars to God because they knew that whatever good they had received ultimately came from him. But it's not just the stuff. What else is it? It's also the people. The people were consecrated. Let's take a look at some of the names in this passage because they are meaningful and they're interesting. There are three guys in these verses. There is King Hadadezer, a king named Toy, and a prince named Joram. Now, let me just get out of the way that we don't know what toy means, and it's not that important to the story, but the other two names are. The one Syrian king David defeats by name is Hadadezer, who is the king of Zobah. Now, Hadda was a false god. The god Hadda was like the storm god or the Zeus, so to speak, of the Canaanite nations, the nations around. So this false god Hadda, the name Hadadezer means Hadda helps. It was a name that talked about how this false god would help his believers and followers, though, of course, he could not. And then the other name that I mentioned is the name Joram. Now, what's interesting about Joram, who is the son of Toy, the king who decides to submit to David, what's interesting is if you look at another passage in the Old Testament, you'll see that his original name was not Joram. His original name was Hadaram, which means the same name Hada, be exalted. This guy, he was a Syrian. He was named after the Syrian false god. His name meant Give worship to Hada, And yet, here in the passage, there's this king, Toi. And he sees God having victory through David, and he sends his son to go and bless David the king, and he changes his name. From Hadda is exalted to Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. It's a conversion story in the Old Testament. He goes from someone who was named after the exaltation of a false God, an idol, to be named after the one true God. Yahweh is exalted. And so in the middle of this story of God's judgment through victory over all of these nations, we have one city and one king, Toy, who decides that rather than just sit by and let the judgment come to him, he's going to submit. He's going to submit to David. He's going to submit to Yahweh. He sees the victory of the Lord over these people, and he sends his son with the tribute and the gifts renames him from a name that glorifies a pagan god to one that exalts the true God. And whether Toy did it, or Joram changed the name, or maybe David changed the name, the takeaway is the consecration we see under David's rule was not just of the things. It was also of the people. See, perhaps a better term than consecrated for us today is worshipful. It was a worshipful kingdom. A nation that set apart their riches but also themselves for the service and glory of God. If you know Bible, you know that the Psalms were kind of the hymn book of ancient Israel. And you realize that almost all of the Psalms were written during the reign of King David. Either by him or by others, but almost all of them were written in the reign of King David, which is pretty incredible because he's the first king. Like, what were they doing the rest of the time? If you read the story of Israel's history, Solomon had the the golden age of Israel when they had all the money flowing in, right? They had peacocks and monkeys and baboons and weird stuff. You might not know it's in the Bible, right? All this stuff that they're bringing in on boats. They're having a great time setting up zoos or whatnot. Golden age of money. But the golden age of worship was under David. David led this kingdom to be people who consecrated themselves to the Lord, that they sang these songs to the Lord. They loved the Lord. They worshipped him with their hearts and souls and minds. See, at Zoe, we believe that part of growing in maturity as a Christian is to understand that all of life is supposed to be worshipped. See, when David led his people to consecrate themselves to the Lord, it was because God had redeemed them for that purpose. And it's the same way for you, and for me. You've been redeemed, if you are a Christian, to be consecrated to the Lord. It doesn't mean that all you do is listen to Shane and Shane on repeat in the background while you're doing your job. It could be part of that, but, but that's not what it's really about. All of life being worshiped means that everything God has given is meant for his glory. Everything. Your job, your family, your relationships, your, your, your money, your time, all of it is for his glory. But if God is the one who gave it to you, and of course he is because every good gift comes from above, then all of that should be used for his purposes. If you're a Christian, someone who has been saved from judgment and redeemed, then just like Joram, your life should be transformed more and more to be not about the exaltation of false gods, but about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. More and more, you should see your entire life as set apart for his use. And it does include your stuff. But don't get me wrong. We don't talk about giving a lot at Zoe. We don't talk about tithing. We don't believe that the Old Testament tithe applies to New Testament believers. But that's just a starting point. Right? You don't have to give 10% of your money to Zoe Community Church. But all of it belongs to the Lord. All of it is for his purposes. How you spend your money should be a prayerful decision. Not just for the big things, but the small. At the end of the day, I ought to give my money to the Lord, to his work, to his church, to my brother and sister in need. There are things that God says he wants to do that we should consecrate our stuff for. But beyond your stuff, how do you consecrate and dedicate your life to him? Just think about the question for a moment. How could your work be worship? And you all do different jobs, you all do different things. How could that thing you do, be worship? How could parenting be worship? How could the way you play sports in that Tuesday night league be worship? How's the way you go on that next vacation going to be worship? Ultimately, it comes down to making much of him. Having an attitude of thankfulness, being faithfully obedient, even when it contradicts your plans, living in integrity before the face of God, making life less about me and more and more about him. David's kingdom was a good kingdom because it was consecrated. It was devoted to the worship of Yahweh among his people. And that leads us to the final point this afternoon. The kingdom that David reigned over was good because it was victorious, it was consecrated, and finally because it was righteous. It was a righteous kingdom. The small kingdom in the ancient Near East was righteous according to the scriptures. Look at verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. In summary, the passage tells us that the peace David ushered in and the consecration to God was accompanied quite naturally by the experience of righteousness, of justice and equity the ESV says. Now, what do these two words mean? Okay, Because these two words are extremely loaded today. If you talk about justice and equity in the world, people are going to have all sorts of ideas. So we need to understand biblically what is being talked about here. The two words in Hebrew that are translated as justice and equity are mishpat and tzedakah. These two words come together in the Bible often, but also separately. They basically mean righteous rule, like the administration of things, uh, right acting, and also moral righteousness, what aligns with God's law. And so I think the term equity can be a bit misleading. It's not actually talking about, like, everyone having the same amount of money or something like that. It's not talking about um, those types of things. It's talking about righteousness. That's why I use the term a righteous kingdom. As one commentator says, Mishpat and Tzedakah were the two basic virtues that characterized every person in society that pleased the Lord. So it's not just about, like, being prosperous. It's not just about secular flourishing. It's not about material wealth. It's not about being like, academically uh, successful or, or being influential in the world's eyes. Because again, if you look at this nation, it wasn't the most influential nation in the ancient Near East. Right? You got like, people conquering all sorts of swaths of Europe and Africa and Asia. But in the Middle East, there's this nation that has justice and equity. It's about treating people in the way that pleases God. This is what those who lived under David's kingdom thousands of years ago, experienced. The text says that in David's reign, the rulers of the kingdom treated people in such a way that it actually pleased the Lord. That justice and righteousness was what it felt like to be in that kingdom. It's not perfect. It wasn't perfect. I'm sure that there were still moments of injustice. But better than they had experienced in hundreds of years before, they experienced under David justice. Can you imagine if you had gone through Decades of oppression and injustice, how good it must have felt to, to be under something new. I think sometimes we don't know, unless you're the victim of unrighteousness, just how good righteousness and justice is. I think of the recent story I just read of, of the man who was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for 30 years for a murder he did not commit. And it turns out, I was watching the interview with him, that the police had never even questioned him about that murder. He had been arrested for a minor offense, and then he had been sentenced, and he thought that they were sentencing the wrong guy. I think about the persecution of Christians around the world for worshiping Christ or speaking the truth of Scripture. And when you see these things, they're reminders to us of the broken world we live in. And they invite us to think about how good a righteous kingdom would be. See, it wasn't perfect. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But the word of God tells us matter-of-factly that the reign of David was a time when his subjects were led according to God's word in righteousness. They executed mishpat and tzedekah, justice and righteousness, and they experienced it in the kingdom. Now the final couple verses of the passage. um, They talk about probably the most exciting part of this passage, right, where David selects his cabinet. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. I know some of you are like, well, that's not a joke. I'm really excited who the next uh, secretary of the interior is going to be. Um, no, it's, it is kind of boring, right? It's like, what is this? And these names, I don't understand. I don't get what these are. But I don't know these guys. I don't know what they're doing. But it's cool how scripture works. Even in the most mundane kind of record-keeping part, the Holy Spirit has stuff for us to notice. Look at these last few verses, starting in 16. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathah, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Karathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. There's basically an administrative list of who did what. But notice here that as David sets up his leadership, and there had never been a cabinet before in Israel. There had never been kind of this this group dynamic of the leadership. As David sets up his leadership structure... There's a concern with the spiritual condition of the people, right? There are, there are two high priests. And now Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelotites, he was a war hero, but he also was a priest. And David's sons acted as priests. And so there is this concern with the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. The righteous character of the kingdom was partly due, we see, from the righteous character of its leaders. The priests, the sons of David, and even Benaiah in verse 18, they were all part of the priesthood. So we need to say, at the very least, that God cares about the spiritual condition of a nation. Now, I'm not here to to talk about how America is God's chosen people. I don't believe that's true at all. But God cares if a nation blasphemes him, if a culture curses the name of Christ and mocks his word, or the spiritual vitality of a nation affects the people who live there. It will affect their lives. It will affect their experience of either justice and righteousness or not. But We can't, like, kind of hide from this truth. Sometimes we want to, especially if you want to be uh, kind of sophisticated in the world's eyes. You don't want to talk about these sorts of things. But a culture that rejects the image of God and people will see no problem eventually with the sacrifice of lives, so to speak, for the sake of prosperity. A culture that rejects the reality of God and his righteousness loses sight of any reason to live other than sex, power, and money. Does this mean that our greatest desire is to bring about like a Christian nation? No, I don't think that's it exactly. But we have to remember that the nation of Israel was a theocracy. God was the king. David was his human king ruling in his stead. And they were chosen specifically by him to be his people among a fallen world. So who is that true of today? We're not a nation in the same way. We don't have an army. We don't go to war. But these ideas of being chosen to be a kingdom of priests, the New Testament says that applies to us as a church. That applies to us as Christians. Most directly, we seek the justice and righteousness of God in the church as members of God's family. And so on the one hand, it's important that the leaders of a church be the right kind of leaders with the right kind of priorities. The state of the building we meet in, the number of attendees, the look of our website or our social media, you know, those things, they don't really matter to God. They don't. And yet so many churches, and and I, I feel the temptation myself, that's what we want, that's what we care about. Those things are fine, but as the people of God, we should care more about justice and righteousness in our midst. We should care about doing what is right and good to one another. Right, we should care about the well-being of our members and even to some degree of our community, more than we care about how many likes we get or how many YouTube like subscriptions we have. Those things don't matter as much as justice and righteousness in the church. What does that mean? Well, men and women and children who do what is right because it's right. Because God says so, not because it's convenient. Men and women and children who live lives of holiness in line with God's word, who then treat others as God would have us treat them, with grace and with respect and with mercy, especially those who are suffering or in need, to experience justice and righteousness among the people of God. All we have to do is live the way that God shows us to live in his word. David's kingdom was a righteous kingdom for God's sake and for the good of his people. I started off today by saying that newer isn't always better. Sometimes we need to look back, even thousands of years, thousands of miles away to a small nation in the world stage where people experienced something really good. A victorious kingdom, a consecrated kingdom, and a righteous kingdom. But if looking back were all we were doing this afternoon That would be pretty bad. That would be pretty sad because it's gone. It's over. Uh, It's done. It's kind of like looking at a picture of yourself when you used to be young, healthy, and beautiful. Everyone uh, in the front half of the church knows what I'm talking about. You look back at these pictures, and then you go to the mirror, and you're like, still got it, right? You hope. That's not what it's about today. That's not what God wants for us. We're not just looking back saying, man, it used to be so, I wish I were an ancient, no. We're not saying, I I wish things were like ancient Israel anymore. No, we look back so that we can more accurately look forward. As we read about David's kingdom, it is a reminder that newer isn't always better. But if we look at the testimony of Scripture, if we believe the Bible, we take heart in knowing that the best is yet to come, and it will come in Christ. That's what the study of David's kingdom should do for you and for me. And all the passages we read about this kingdom and what was happening thousands of years ago, it should remind us, it should excite us about what is going to happen when Christ brings his eternal kingdom fully. 3,000 years ago in this broken and messed up world, there was a good kingdom under David. How much better? How much more perfect? How much more amazing will the kingdom that Christ brings be? See, this is a glimpse, a picture of what the Bible tells us will surely come. One day, Christ will be victorious, not just in the north, south, east, and west of Israel, in the four corners of the earth, right? You guys have read the book of Revelation. He will be victorious over every knee that doesn't want to bow, but will bow before Christ, the Lord. And one day, we who have believed will be fully, finally consecrated and dedicated to him, freed of the sin that, that, that would harm us and break that relationship with God, freed of condemnation, transformed to fully see and fully exalt and worship him. The Bible tells us in Revelation that in the end, we will see the nations of the world bring tribute to God as he reigns on the throne, that every people and tribe and tongue who deserve death but have received life will worship. The Bible says one day we will live in perfect justice and righteousness. No more oppression, no more selfishness, no more greed and partiality and abortion and racism and hatred or the like, justice and righteousness and all that flows from it. All the blessings that come will be ours, not just for a season or a decade, but for forever. So that's where we're going to land the plane this morning. There is a kingdom coming. There's judgment that comes before then, too. So how do we get to be part of the kingdom? Well, the Bible says it's pretty simple, actually. We were enemies. We were deserving of judgment, as much as the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites. We read in Romans 5 that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. And the Bible says to all who receive him, who believe in Jesus Christ, he gave the right. It's amazing. He gave the right to be transformed from enemies into children of God. From outsiders to citizens of his kingdom. From hopeless to full of hope and anticipation of his return. So as we look back at the kingdom of David in 2 Samuel 8, we aren't called to long for ancient Israel to long for a bygone era, we are called to look forward to Jesus Christ, the future and the hope of this world, to begin to live even now in light of the kingdom that will surely come. the book of Revelation, chapter 11, John writes of the vision of the end that he sees, and this is what he says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for you to help us to see that when we experience victory and consecration to your purposes, we experience the righteousness of God, that these things are good. And I pray, God, that you would also help us to see that the hope for this world is not in this world. It's in you, the creator, the sustainer, the savior, and ultimately the one who will redeem all things. And so we pray, God, for this afternoon there are so many ways we might apply these principles. But first of all, Lord, help us to see and long for and desire your kingdom. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. But would that be our prayer together?